You know, um, we've had the privilege as a church, literally from the very first time that we've taken an offering, to support missionaries. Every week as you give to Hope Chapel, a percentage of that, 13% of that actually is given to missions directly. Part of that goes out to a network that we call the Cooperative Program, which helps support churches and ministers around the world. And so from the very beginning, we've had a chance to be involved in spreading the gospel around the world. But it wasn't too long into our journey, like 2003 or so, that we, we began to support some, church, some missionaries directly as well. Several of those serve overseas. Some of those are like Joel Gray, who serves in Burkina Faso with his wife and his four children, and they've planted their lives there, and they've been ministering there now for over 20 years. I can remember when they first left to go to Burkina Faso as they were friends of ours before we started Hope Chapel. We also support Debbie Ionetti, who works with Campus Crusade for Christ in Rome. There is a part of a, a, a core team to, to build a network of Italian believers who can reach out to the campuses across the nation of Italy. We've had the privilege of a church to, to send people out around the globe, literally, on mission. We've seen teenagers go to the Dominican Republic, to South Africa, to a place we call the city because it's dangerous enough there for believers that we can't really say the word, say the name of the place out loud. We've had a chance last year and again this year to help sponsor a college student who's going to go to China for Christmas and get a chance to engage in conversational English with Chinese students and get a chance to, to share a gospel witness. Last year, my son Ben went. This year, Melissa Albee will be going. God, we, we've had the privilege of, of having people go. Like I had a chance a few years ago to Romania. And then, of course, just the, the ongoing work that we have in Rwanda. You know, and I was struck this week as, as, as we often pray for missions and missionaries. I don't know about you, but one of the things that I pray most commonly is, Lord, keep them healthy. And Lord, keep them safe. Right? I mean, right now we have a student doing a gap year in South Africa, Erica Wilson. And one of the things we probably frequently pray for her is, Lord, keep her healthy and keep her safe. Those aren't bad things to pray for. But this text is, that we're going to look at today has got me asking the question, is that the best thing to pray for? I'd love for you to take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 4 with me. If you use one of our pew Bibles, you're going to find our text to page, on, on page 927, flowing over onto 928. Confessionally, this is a, uh, we're going to look at a passage of Scripture today could, that really could be five or six different sermons. And as much as I'm enjoying preaching through the book of Acts, I, I don't want to be preaching through the book of Acts until I retire. So we're, we're going to take some bigger chunks here as we go. So we're going to look at verses 1 through 31 today from Acts chapter 4. It's a powerful text. There's a lot of places where we could stop and, and plant ourselves and, and mine out a lot of great things that God could teach us. But, but I want to kind of pull a lot of pieces together today. And in some ways, a lot of our sermons we've been having lately have been kind of heavy-duty exhortation, and in some ways, I just kind of want us to have a conversation together to make us think about some things today as we look at this text. And as a, as a curtain raises on our text today, you have to remember that Peter and John are in the temple complex. 
God has just used them as instruments of grace to bring healing to a man who's been lame for over 40 years. The presence of this guy running around the temple complex, jumping and praising God, has, has drawn a crowd. And Peter and John, as their hearts are moved for the people, they, they begin to teach them about how this happened. And as a result of that, who Christ is and, and what Christ can mean in their lives. And literally, as that is going on, as they're still in the middle of their sermons, we pick up with verse 1 of chapter 4. Now, as they were speaking, so you get the impression that both Peter and John were preaching, even though we only have the words of Peter recorded for us in chapter 3. Now, as they were speaking to the people, the priest, the commander of the temple guard, who was kind of like the vice high priest, the guy, you know, the, the next in line, and the Sadducees confronted them because they were provoked. They were angry that they were teaching the people and proclaiming in the person of Jesus the resurrection from the dead. So they seized them, and they put them in custody until the next day, since it was already evening. But many of those who heard the message believed, and the number of men came to about 5,000. Now, we don't know if that's 5,000 new believers as a result of that message, or whether at this point in time the church consisted of 5,000 men, and then women and children, and you know, that kind of idea. But still, the church is growing and having a great impact. Pick up with verse 5. The next day, their rulers, elders, and scribes assembled in Jerusalem with Annas the high priest, Caiaphas, <coughs> excuse me, John and Alexander, and all the members of the high priestly family. And after they had Peter and John stand before them, they asked the question, by what power or in what name have you done this? And then Peter was filled with the Holy Spirit. You can just, you know, Jesus said, I will give you words when you stand before rulers. He said, and then this being fulfilled in, in Peter, as he said, he was filled with the Holy Spirit. And he said to them, rulers of the people and elders, if we are being examined today, if we're on trial for doing something good to a disabled man, to a, for a good deed done to a disabled man, by what means he was healed, let it be known to all of you and to all the people of Israel that by the name of Jesus Christ, the Nazarene, remember the guy you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by this, by him, this man is standing here before you, healthy. This Jesus is the stone despised by the builders, by you builders, who has become the cornerstone. There is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given to people by which we must be saved. When they observed the boldness of Peter and John and realized that they were uneducated and untrained men, they were amazed. And they knew they had been with Jesus. And since they saw the man who had been healed standing with them, <laughs> another miracle occurs. And that's the miracle of this. They had nothing to say in response. And after they had ordered them to leave the Sanhedrin, they conferred among themselves, what should we do with these guys? For an obvious sign, evident to all who live in Jerusalem, has been done through them, and we can't deny it. But so this does not spread any further among the people. Let's threaten them against speaking to anyone in this name again. So they called for them and ordered them not to preach or to teach at all in the name of Jesus. 
But Peter and John answered them and said, whether it's right in the sight of God for us to listen to you rather than to God, you're going to have to decide. You decide. For us, we're unable to stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And after threatening them further, they released them. They found no way to punish them because the people were all giving glory to God over what had been done. For the man was over 40 years old on whom the sign of healing had been performed. And remember, he had been lame since birth. After they were released, they went to their own fellowship and reported all that the chief priests and the elders had said to them. When they heard this, they raised their voices to God unanimously and said, Master, you are the one who made the heaven, the earth, and the sea, and everything in them. In other words, God, you're in charge. You said through the Holy Spirit, by the mouth of our father David, your servant, you said this, why did the Gentiles rage and the people plot futile things? The kings of the earth took their stand and the rulers assembled together against the Lord, against his Messiah. It says, for in fact, in this city, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the Gentiles and the people of Israel, they, they, they fulfilled this prophecy as they assembled together against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. And now, Lord, consider their threats and grant that your slaves may be kept safe and healthy or might be protected or that we might be able to find a great place to hide. Now it says that grant that your slaves may speak your message with complete boldness. While you stretch out your hand for healing signs and wonders to be performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus. And when they had prayed, the place where they were assembled was shaken. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak God's message with boldness. May God add his blessing to the reading of his word. Now, there are a number of places where we could camp in this text and just really feed ourselves from God's word. You know, part of it is just this statement in verse 12, there's salvation in no one else because there's no other name given under heaven by which men must be saved. What, what a great message. Or the idea that these Peter and John were recognized as having been with Jesus. What a great place for us to stay and kind of toy around with that. Or this idea of obeying God rather than men. Not being able to stop speaking what we have seen and heard. What a, what a great place for us to ponder some things for us. But, but I want to focus in on how all of this led to their prayer. And I want to ask specifically the question, what does it take for us to pray this way? Now, I'm going to walk through the text and give you just a little bit more of a feel of some of the dynamics that are going on here, a little deeper understanding. And I want to come back and ask that question. What was it about the disciples that in the face of the threats, the same people who had the ability to assassinate their teacher, what was it about them that allowed them to walk out of that place knowing that these guys had the ability to do exactly what they said they were going to do what, what, what was it about them that allowed them to walk out and pray for boldness rather than protection? Let's kind of go through this. Peter and John are up on the Temple Mount. The crowds assembled. 
they're teaching, you know, they're teaching the opportunity. Jesus has done a miracle. The resurrected Christ is still at work in the world, and they're proclaiming the message. Out on the fringes, you have the priests and others who kind of see this crowd come together. And then they hear a little bit of what's going on, and a part of what's being proclaimed is the resurrection of Christ. And that immediately gets their attention. Some of it might have been theological, because the Sadducees, who really had control of the temple, they didn't believe in the resurrection. Though there were members of the Sanhedrin, the Pharisees, who did. But what really probably got their their attention was the fact that in the culture of Judaism in the first century, that any time you started talking about resurrection, it always led to some messianic fever. Because they they associated the resurrection with the coming of the Messiah. And whenever you got the messianic fever kind of going, before you knew it, you had insurrection. And so here are the people who are supposed to be in charge of the Temple Mount. And they hear these guys talking about resurrection. And the first thing that they're thinking is, before you know it, we're going to have a full-blown insurrection on our hands. And we need to nip this in the bug before the Romans come down and crush us. And so they immediately go after Peter and John. And they take them under arrest. It's too late in the day. The Sanhedrin, which usually met every single day of the week, um, they were already dispersed for the evening, so they kept them overnight in jail can really wonder what Peter and John were thinking that night and how the rest of the church was praying for them that night. The morning comes and the Sanhedrin, which was traditionally set up in a semicircle so they could see one another, they bring in Peter and John. So, so here you have these fishermen from Galilee and they're walking into the Supreme Court you know, of Israel. Guys all decked out in their best clothes. These are the who's who of the leaders and authority and the people of status and power and wealth in the nation. And they, they, they really look at Peter and John and, and what they want to know is who gave you the right to teach and do these things in our temple? You know, they're, they're about control. Because the last thing they, they're, their whole lifestyle, everything about them is built on their position in the nation. And they don't want to lose that because they've made peace with the Romans. And that's how they've come to have their position in the society. And said, so who gave you the authority? Who gave you the permission? Where's your, where's your permit to be up there teaching, you know? And Peter is unfazed, which they find incredible. What, you're not intimidated standing before us? You remind us of somebody. This Galilean teacher that used to run around up there, that, you know, and he, and he didn't have any formal education. He didn't have any diplomas on his wall. But boy, when he stood before us, he had a sense of conviction that came from the inside out that gave him a strength and an understanding and a perspective that we'd never seen before. And Peter and John had the same. They say, you know what? If you want to know how this happened, here's the deal. It happened through the name of Jesus. Remember that guy that you crucified? Well, God raised him. And because he's alive and he's ascended into heaven, sitting at the right hand of the Father, this guy stands before you today healed. And you need to know that there's no other way to get to God but through Jesus Christ. And the Sanhedrin sits there speechless. Probably the first time ever they sat there speechless. I don't know what to say. 
So they follow their typical procedures. They, they kick Peter and John out. And they say, you know what, we don't have a legal foot to stand on. But in order for us to have a legal foot to stand on in the future, let's instruct them, let's order them that you can never teach in this guy's name again. And if you violate that, you're going to be breaking the law. And then we'll have a reason and a legal right to stand on to arrest you and to put you away. So they instruct them not to speak anymore in the name of Jesus. And they bring Peter and John back in. And they threaten them. Saying, we're telling you right now, no more teaching in his name. And if you do, this is what's going to happen. Peter and John, again, the the strength, the inner character, the, the sense of conviction, the purpose. They just say, you know what? Whether it's right to do what you say or to do what God says, you're going to have to make up your mind on that side. But we're going to tell you what we're going to do. We're not going to stop talking about what we've seen and heard. Sanhedrin threatens them some more, lets them go. They immediately go back to the fellowship. Probably wasn't the whole 5,000 men and all the families and others that went with it. Maybe it was the subset. Maybe it was the 120 who had been there when the Holy Spirit came. But they gather back together and, and they report everything that's happened. And, and immediately, you know, somebody says, we've got to pray about this. And so they start praying, and the first thing they acknowledge is, God, you're in charge. And everything that happened in Jerusalem to Jesus was a result of, one, the world organizing itself against you, but the fact that you were at work in it, and it all happened according to your plan. So, God, we have one request to you. Keep doing miracles so that we have more of an opportunity to stand up and boldly proclaim your name, no matter what they're saying to us about what we should do. That's, that's what's happening in this passage. Let me come back to our question. What was it about Peter and John, about the twelve, about the hundred and twenty, about the early church that was experiencing faith the way it could be? What was it about them that in the face of these kind of threats, instead of praying for protection, instead of praying for safety, Rather than praying for God to dethrone their enemies or to change their circumstances or anything else, what they prayed for was boldness. In fact, God said, make this happen. We want to have this conflict. Keep doing miracles. Keep doing the healings and the signs and the wonders so that we can spread your message with complete boldness. What, what, would, you, would you guys pray that way? I don't know if I would have prayed that way. What was it about them that prompted them to pray in this nature? And, and, and there's probably a lot, but there's a couple things that God's really impressed in my heart. And the first of those is that these guys had a level of conviction that you and I never get to. That They stood before the Sanhedrin. They stood in that prayer room. And they not only had heard it and believed it, but they were absolutely convinced that there was no other way to experience life except through the name of Jesus. I mean, that conviction was absolutely pure. 
It wasn't defiled with some other questions out here. Well, maybe some of the stuff the world ha- has to offer will somehow make my life better too. So I get, oh, let me, let me have both of these, my cake and I think my, you know, mammon and, and, and the treasures in heaven. They were absolutely convinced that there was no other way to experience life except through the name of Jesus. And out of that sense of conviction, they didn't waver. I mean, these are the guys who had seen Jesus do the miracles. They had seen Jesus turn the water into wine. They had seen him make the lame walk. The blind see. The woman who was bleeding stopped bleeding. They had seen him bring the dead back to life. They had heard the teachings of Jesus. I am the bread of life. I am the light of the world. I am the way, the truth, and the life. And no one gets to the Father but by me. I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me will never die. They had heard all this stuff. They they knew it. They believed it. They understood it. They had pulled it through. They had seen him in the resurrection. They had watched him be nailed to a cross. They saw the blood flow from his side. They saw him die on the cross. They saw him buried in the tomb. But they also met the risen Christ. The same one who had reached out his hands and said, go ahead, touch the holes in my hands and the Home. They had seen the resurrection Christ. Not only that, they had been commissioned by the re- resurrected Christ. As the Father has sent me, so send I you. You are supposed to be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria. To the un- they, they had seen it all, and they were absolutely convinced. And here's what that sense of conviction created in them. Something that, that perhaps the majority of us are missing in our own lives, is that that sense of conviction created a desire in their lives for there to be no, nothing that stood between their spiritual conscience and their obedience to God. Let me let that sink in for a minute. What they knew to be right in the eyes of God and what they actually did they wanted to be there. They, would, they didn't want anything to be in between those two things. Th- their sense of conviction that Jesus was indeed the way to life here and for all of eternity created in them such a passion that they wanted there to be no barriers between what they knew was right in the eyes of God and what they actually did with their lives. And that's not the case for many of us. And it's often, way too often, not the case for me. The primary reason why there is sin and disobedience and unfaithfulness in my life and yours is that there's something that stands between what I know is right in the eyes of God and what I actually do. There's some other conviction, some other priority, some other claim, some other that stands between those two things. Their conviction was such that there was no barrier between those two things. No matter what you tell us to do, we've we got to tell you, we know it's right in the eyes of God not to stop speaking in the name of Jesus Christ about what we've seen and what we heard. And therefore, their prayer was, God, make us bold. Not protect us, not preserve us, not keep us safe, not make us rich and wealthy, not make us comfortable, 
Not make us secure, not make us popular, but God, just make us bold. And the list could kind of go. There's just all kinds of things that flows from that sense of conviction. Now, with that, what? I see another one. What was different about them than us is not only did they have this purity or intensity, the urgency of this conviction that Jesus really was the life. But they had a pure objective in their lives. Their mission, what they valued, what they were most passionate about, what they were most eager about, the thing that drove every decision, that underlaid every prayer, was that they valued more than anything else simply being faithful to God. Their objective of their life was just to be faithful. Acts 1, you shall be my witnesses. That's what God's asked me to do. I don't want anything. Not even the threats of the most powerful body in Judaism to deter me from being faithful from what God's asked me to do. And there was a purity in their longing. The, the, the religious rulers, they had their own passions. I want to protect my status, my lifestyle, my position. I don't want there to be any uproar in the nation that could bring the Romans down and change everything. And so they had other kinds of objectives, but for them, they had one objective, to be faithful to God. And again, this is a place where I and perhaps you often struggle with that level of purity because, sure, I want to be faithful to God, but there's other ways in which I want to be able to see symbols of success or achievement. I want to have some level of comfort and security. You know, when I go to Rwanda, I want to have a flush toilet. You know, I don't want to be using the trees. You know, there's all these kinds of things that we begin to put on the parameters of our faithfulness. Sometimes it's, and the list can just kind of go on and on. And so, what was different about them, and perhaps us, is that they were truly convinced and truly wanted to be faithful to God. Such so that there was nothing that got between their spiritual conscience, what they knew to be right in the eyes of God, and what they actually did. Now, I'm realistic enough to know that some of you, perhaps even myself, would say, okay, I, I, I know what was different about them that led them to pray this prayer. That in the face of tremendous odds, great costs, lots of risk, lots of uncertainty, all that kind of stuff, that they prayed for boldness rather than anything else. Why would I want to pray that prayer? Why would you want to pray that prayer? There's some of us who would, you know, if it was our kids out to this meeting with the, with, with the apostles, they came home and said, we, we, we need to temper this down just a little bit. Let's look at this from the big picture. You know, Why would you want to pray this prayer? The answer that God gave me was that the reason I would want to pray this prayer, to be like them, is because when I'm like them, absolutely convinced and completely passionate about being faithful to God, that prompts a prayer that says, God, just make me bold in my faithfulness. It's when we pray like that and we are like that, 
Those are the moments we get to experience God as God. How does God answer their prayer? They're gathered together and say, God, we recognize that you're sovereign. We know that everything that took place in the life of Jesus was according to your plan. We can see how the world is working against you. And God, we just want to be faithful. And God shakes the place. He shows up as sovereign God. And he fills them with, their, with his power all over again. See, when we pray this prayer with the same characteristics that they had, what we get to experience is God is truly God. So the question that really is left for us, maybe not so much how we pray for our missionaries, but how do we pray for ourselves? Do we pray for boldness? What kind of prayers are you going to pray? Are you going to pray to be a follower of Christ and to receive Him as your Savior and Lord based upon the conditions of the forgiveness of sins that He brings? Are you going to pray to be bold as a proclaimer of the name that's been given under heaven by which men must be saved? Let's pray together. You know, Father, there's a lot in this text that prompts us to talk with you. God, God I, I just pray that as we leave this place, that the dialogue that needs, needs to take place wouldn't get pushed out by the cares of the world. May all the things that are on our agenda to get ready for Thanksgiving, all the pressures from work that are, go with a short work week, all the travel plans and all the things that are part of just our everyday lives. God, I pray that you would draw us into conversation with you. At the end of it, that we'd be people who pray for boldness so that we might experience who you really are. For this we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.